security started to commoditize as well. And we lost a couple of really big accounts. We had massive revenue concentration. Like one of our, our biggest customer was, call it 40% of our revenue and most of our profits. Could um, be dangerous. Very dangerous, very, very dangerous. And one of our competitors basically came in and bought that business to kick us out. And so we got our sort of legs chopped out from underneath us again. Welcome to Montreal Startups, a show where we cover local, innovative, fast-growing companies and the inspiring stories behind them. In part one of our mini-series with Hamnet, we got a glimpse of what the Montreal tech scene looked like during the late 90s and early 2000s. Hamnet went into detail about what it was like co-founding and getting zero knowledge off the ground, and how their theory that the rise of the internet would instill growing concerns over privacy wasn't exactly correct. In part two of our conversation, Hamnet dives into how zero knowledge had to shape a new identity, their exit from the company, and the eventual spin-off of their next big idea. Hamnet is a big-time foodie. In fact, he's the founder of Edo Capital, a private equity firm that partners with sustainable food innovators. But the bad news is, despite his passion for food, we couldn't get an answer out of him on his favorite Montreal restaurant. So there was that sort of turnaround phase. I don't remember exactly when it was, like what year it was, a little bit of a blur. But where we, we needed another, you know, five or six months of, of cash to fund the, the transition to being cash flow positive when we wouldn't need any more investment. And that was the, uh, you know, I think I, I mentioned there were two businesses that, that had been left. We, one of them was called Sonomos, and that was a database privacy management. So they had a, um, and Austin was running that one. They had built a, a markup language to be able to ascribe policy to different data. So you could say this data came from this place and is subject to these rules, et cetera, et cetera. Um, ultimately, they just couldn't get to commercialization quick enough. The, the, the enterprise sales cost and, and timeframes were long. Uh, and so ultimately that ended up at IBM. So it was sort of a, a sideways deal that, that got the tech into IBM and then we shut it down. Right, so that was, the, that was that one. And the only one was left was the consumer business unit, which had transitioned to selling uh, consumer security services, PC security services, but through different channels. So selling it through private label through PC manufacturers or certain retailers that we sold it through under their own brands. But we also had sold it through telcos. And so, you know, around that time, sort of 2003, was really the acceleration of the shift to broadband. And so you had a whole different kind of customer that was starting to come onto the internet, and they were coming on to an always-on, always-connected internet connection, which was different than ever before. And that was all as opposed to dial-up, where where you have a modem and you pick it up and you tie up the family phone line, and then I get off the internet. And your mom's yelling at you, saying, "I'm waiting for my phone call." Exactly, (laughs) exactly. And and so that change really got a different kind of consumer onto the internet. Um, and you were either calling up video or you're calling a bell, because that's the only place you could get broadband. And so one of the channels we tried was to go to both Telus and Bell, were, were some of our early customers, and say, hey, your customers are coming online. They're afraid of hackers now. So for the first time, they're always connected. And there's hackers and there's viruses and there's all these bad guys out there. 
there's an opportunity for you while you're signing them up and subscribing them to make sure that they're safe when they get online. And so we signed Bell and Telus and, uh, and worked with them to launch those projects where they were selling it as a value-added service. So they would say, when somebody was calling to sign up for broadband, are you protected from the big bad things on the internet? Um, like viruses, and it was before spyware, it was really viruses and, and hackers. And then they would offer, I think at the time it was for nine or 10 bucks a month for an additional charge on your bill, we'll take care of it. And then we would take care of that entire service offering. It looked like Bell, the UI on the client software was, was Bell. We were integrated into the back end of the billing systems with Bell and with Telus, uh, and, it, and it really took off. Like, uh, it was the right place with the right offer to the right consumer, and the friction for a consumer to make that decision was next to nothing. You know? So instead of saying, I want you to go to this website on the internet, and I want you to pull out your credit card, and I want you to type it in, and then I want you to download this software and do, all they have to do is say yes. Yes, no on right. an upsell. Yeah. That's it. And so, um, and it was automatically added to the bill. And there was like a magical sort of combination that just worked like mad. Um, they, were, they were signing up one out of two or two out of three of every new subscriber that was coming under broadband was signing up for this service. And so it was a massive, massive, massive moneymaker. Consumers liked it. Um, and so we stopped doing everything else. So I shut down all efforts on anything else and said, we're going to focus um, entirely on working with service providers, so telcos and cable companies, and equipping them with these capabilities to sell these services. That um, really helped turn around the business, I guess, at this point. Yeah, because like the, the, the initial turnaround cash had come from sort of little di different places, like you know, selling to PC manufacturers. Um, uh, so the same thing, we'd have like an HP piece of software and it would pop up on your desktop and, and say your free trial's up or you don't have any virus, click here and, and pay for it, uh, which was okay. You know, the, the problem was that channel was, uh, i.e. The, the, the PC manufacturers, um, they started to get that it was a valuable piece of real estate. And so every time they'd have a new model come up, they'd basically call McAfee and Semantic and whoever and say, okay, how big a check are you going to write me? to put your software there. And so it was really difficult to hold on to that business. But that was sort of the first cash that helped us turn the business around. But the ISP business was really a place where we could, I think, shine, like where we, we could build a competitive advantage in a, in a mode around the business that was tough to compete with. And so we decided to just focus there. Because it was private label, it was associated with the, with the ISP's brand, and because we were deeply integrated into their billing systems, which was complicated and difficult, we were a lot stickier. And the experience for the consumer was a lot better. Uh, and so we focused on that, had awesome results, had happy customers, and signed up um, over the next three or four years, signed up almost all of the cable companies and telco telcos in North America, and all of the cable companies in the UK, uh, and a few in Europe. And so that was really, um, that was what became Radial Point. So we rebranded the business. I, I rebranded the business in, uh, in 2004, maybe, um, to Radial Point. And we started to really lean into this, this vision of using this, this surf, the software distribution platform to be able to sell consumer services or consumer software as a service to customers through these different channels. 
And the, the vision for it was to continually continue to find other kinds of things that customers could buy through these channels we had set up. And uh, and so that that was what was Radio Point. And so over the next, I mean, ultimately 10 years, but really the next from about 2004 to 2010, uh, five or six years, we just doubled revenue every uh, every year. Just kept growing, growing, growing. Yeah. Please, your investors at that point that took that risk in 2002. For sure. Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, we had an interesting opportunity in 2007. Um, the investors that had made that sort of additional million dollar bet, um, they had uh, they had purchased their fund from their LPs, basically. Um, so their their investors had wanted to get out, and so these these the guys who were running the fund were able to buy it, and they were all just looking to get out. They were looking to liquidate and 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 sell businesses, and so they wanted to get out of the business. And so there was an opportunity um, for me to buy them out, and me and my partners to buy them out. And so when they were looking to get out of the business, we negotiated a deal and and um, and bought them out, and because and regained control of of the business. Yeah, exactly. So we were able to borrow all the money we needed to, to buy them out um, in 2007. And so in 2007, um, the employees and um, my partners, we owned it all. Really, my, my father and I owned it all. And so we were sort of full circle in the business after 10 years. You know, we started it in 97, um, you know, raised a lot of money, lost it by about 2002, and then owned it again in 2007. So you're still headquartered here in Montreal, or is there a lot of back and forth to the Valley at that point? No, interestingly, like it wasn't a really Valley-centric business. Right, you know, it we didn't were, need to be there. It didn't need to be. Yeah. You know, most of the carriers and telcos are East Coast in North America, or in the South maybe, um, and then in Europe. And so we had a small presence in the UK that we serviced all our UK customers and, uh, and did business development in the rest of Europe. Uh, and then service most folks out of here. So no, we were Montreal-based. You know, our business model, we really focused on it. It was a great business model because we were focused on building the UI, the management layer, um, uh, and the management software to be able to turn on these services uh, for the consumer and manage the different brands for all of the, the different customers we had. But we didn't actually do any antivirus engines. We didn't do any anti-spyware engines. We would buy those 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 engines from the suppliers that are out there on the market. So from, you know, Kaspersky or from Attaware or from all the different folks that had um, had great antivirus engines. We would just buy those and then integrate them into our software. And so you know the margins were really healthy in the business. That was almost commoditized. So we were able to, you know, uh, with with very low cost of sales, we were able to to generate a lot of profits from that business. So okay, so there's through this ten year period, it's quite the roller coaster. Lots of ups and downs. You mentioned the turnaround point. At this point, from what I understand, there's something else brewing inside Radio Point, and that's the early early stages or the concept for Smooch. Is that correct? Kind of. It's actually later. So there's a couple more roller coasters to come. So okay. in in 2007, we bought out the early VCs, and, and then it's it, pure family run at that point. And so it was pure family owned. And then about a year, year and a half later, right before the financial crisis, we had really been able to um, increase profits really significantly over the from the time that we bought it to about a year and a bit later. 
And so we sold half the business to private equity partners in 2008, like right before the financial crisis went nuts and the world sort of came to another end, another bubble <laughs> burst. And so we all had a, a really, um, a very healthy liquidity event, but still owned a big part of the business right. and continued to grow it. Um, so um, that business security started to commoditize as well. And we lost a couple of really big accounts. We had massive revenue concentration. Like one of our, our biggest customer was, call it 40% of our revenue mm-hmm. and most of our profits. Could um, be dangerous. Very dangerous, very, very dangerous. And one of our competitors basically came in and bought that business to kick us out. And mm-hmm. so we got our sort of legs chopped out from underneath us again. Wow. Um, and so we sort of went back into turnaround mode again. You know, we had a cost infrastructure and a private equity cap table that had a lot of debt and, and some other things on it. And so we were sort of forced to reinvent ourselves again. The place where we re- reinvented ourselves was um, we had already started to work on remote technical support. So people would call into your telco and say, my PC is not working, my internet's not working, and ask the telco to fix their, their computer. And they both didn't want to and weren't able to. And so they would sell them a premium remote Geek Squad kind of service. Geek Squad, yeah. Yeah, and so we built a software. We actually bought a company and a team before we, we uh, lost that customer to be able to build a, a private label service offering where they could sell it to their customers. We ran the software that was installed on people's PCs, but then also had the software that outsourcers would use in India and the Philippines to be able to remotely deliver that service to fix people's PCs remotely at a reasonable cost. And, and so that was sort of the business that we built up over the next three or four years that um, had a different different profile, but different, had a different margin profile, but was still a, a good growth business. So we built that business into um, you know, 20 or $30 million in a few years. Smooch really came out of that business. What we found was that people preferred not to get on the phone and chat. What they really liked to do was to sit and type and chat with uh, an agent that was fixing their PC. We also found that the agents could service 10 or 12 different computers at the same time or different sessions at the same time while they were texting or messaging back and forth. Right. And so that was really the nugget for it. And you know, later on in the business, in uh, sort of 2013, 2014, we split some teams apart to sort of innovate and see if we could come up with some new businesses. And one of the teams had started uh, building a, a messaging SDK for mobile apps so that anybody who was building a mobile app could very easily drop messaging capabilities into it. So that was the initial nugget for Smooch. And they were really... Still inside Radio Point at this still, point. Exactly, still inside right. Radio Point, a small team, um, sort of hackathon style. It actually came out of a hackathon. Like the two innovation projects we were doing emerged from a hackathon, that, the, some hackathons that we had done. And they were getting a lot of really positive traction from the development community out there. Um, it was, you know, it was free, um, but it was also really built for developers. The docs were amazing. The tone of, of the, the culture of the product was, was really friendly to developers and people just loved it. But it didn't really have a business model around it, didn't really have a vision for it. 
but there was something there. Um, we knew that there was something with messaging. And we ultimately sold Radial Point in, uh, I think it was finalized in 2015. And we sold it to AppDirect, which is another Montreal set of founders, San Francisco-based, but, but started here. Uh, Nick Demeray is the, is the, the, and Dan Sachs were the two founders of that business. Uh, they started it here and then went to the Valley and, and, set, and set up the business there. And you know, they had, their business was doing sort of value-added services, but for selling SaaS software to SMB through carriers and through um, other distribution channels. So there were similarities, but they really needed that capability. So we sold the, they, what they were really interested in buying was the, um, those, the service capability, you know, the remote tech support capability, um, as well as some of the security services. So they weren't so interested in that piece of the business. The smooch element that's exactly. currently yeah. built. They weren't looking for sort of a, a messaging product or to invest in new products. That really wasn't what they were interested in. So even though that was being the, the, the IP that you're building up through smooch, even though it's done under radio point, it was not included in the package when you, when you exit. Exactly. So when we exited, we were able to, they weren't so interested in it. So one of the things that we were able to negotiate was that let off. us take that out, right? You know, let us yeah. let us take that team and and uh, uh, let's take that team and that IP, um, and so that's not what we're selling you. So, so, so 2015, you finally sell the corporate entity that <laughs> was started that, that has its roots uh, back in. That's the, not even true. We sold the assets. Okay, but, but yeah. So you so, we you sold so, that business from that, that basically got off the ground in 1997. Went through all these ups and downs. So you know you're yeah. uh, almost 20 years later. You're finally out of it. How did you feel at that point? How did you, your brother, and your father all feel? Was it almost a burden off your shoulders, or did you feel like new beginnings now? And you know, I, I think each chapter was almost a thing in and of its own. Mm-hmm. You know, like it, it, the, the fact that they happened to be under the same business and there were some staff involved throughout all of them, and, and uh, some of the people were the same. They really felt like different businesses altogether. So while it was one startup, it was really a whole bunch of startups. Right. You know, we had a, a privacy, you know, consumer privacy startup, and then we had an enterprise privacy startup, and then we had a, the turnaround was a chapter in and of its on, on its own. You know, and then we had a security business, and then uh, like it was really, it was really a bunch of serial entrepreneur, um, entrepreneurial efforts. All combined, un- yeah, yeah, under one umbrella. Exactly. Right. Was it, was there a part of you once you guys left Radio Point and and Smooch is, is starting to emerge here? But is there a part of you that says, "I've done well. Maybe it's time for me to kind of kick my feet up for a while and sit back"? Or was that you know, is go 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 again? No, no, for sure. I actually so in at Radio Point in 2013, I actually stepped out as CEO, and so. I had spent sort of five years after we did our private equity deal, we had sort of rebuilt this um, premium service business. And my, one of my, my team members, Warren Levitan, who's now CEO of Smooch, uh, who had been, uh, started early days with zero knowledge and then uh, left and I brought him, he came back to work at Radial Point in the mid aughts. He was, he had been my CFO and then COO and then he took over as CEO, and I took some time off. And I went, uh, uh, went sailing for a year um, and really sort of disconnected significantly for a year. And that was enough. And then I came back, and I started doing some other stuff, actually. So I started a, a, 
sort of food, food tech fund, um, started investing in different kinds of startups in 2014, 2015, and was really starting to build that business called Edo Capital. Edo, right, and that's that's simultaneously with with Smooch at this point. Yeah, well, so so Smooch was still a project inside of Radial Point at that point. Okay, you know, and then when it looked like when the sale was going down, and it looked like there might be an opportunity to to, to spin that out, uh, Warren needed to stay on for a while with with the company at, at AppDirect, right, um, as part of that acquisition, and so I got really excited about what they had started, but also the potential of what Smooch could be. And so I decided to stop working on the the investment fund um, and stop making new investments there and jump into to Smooch full time. Hey everyone, just a quick word from our sponsor Breather. Breather's mission is to empower companies with private workspace that helps them meet their full potential. Growing rapidly, Breather has a network of over 400 workspaces across 10 global markets available on demand for hours, days, or months at a time with no membership or subscription fee. Visit breather.com to learn more. So tell us about Smooch at this point, once yeah. it's getting off the ground. What exactly is the vision for Smooch and, and how, does it, uh, how does that fit into... Yeah, so, so what got me excited about Smooch, what it was at that point was really a series of... It was an SDK for um, web and Android and iOS so that you could build messaging into your, into your apps or into your website. D- define SDK for for uh, listeners. Sorry, a software development kit. I think is, is the technical right. term, but it's basically a, a code that you can stuff into your other code to to fill some functions in your application. So instead of having to build all that with a few, for instance, instead of having Stripe's uh, Stripe's actually an API. It's not really an SDK, but um, it's a it's a chunks of code with functionality that you can build into your application. And so we had it so you could build a messaging chat window into your website, or you could build chat windows and, and messaging windows into your and, and functionality into your application, your, your apps for mobile. So that's what it was to start, and a lot of folks were doing interesting stuff. But th- as we got it, and, and there was a lot of usage and a lot of downloads, and, and people are starting to experiment with bots, you know, so chat bots, chat bots people yeah. are starting to build. But what was interesting as I started to get more and more into it was the overall shift in consumer behavior that had happened uh, with how we communicate, you know, telephone minutes between consumers has been crashing for years, um, while messaging and texting back and forth has been going through the roof. Like it really, it is the preferred method of communication for everybody in all ages. But if you segment it down into age brackets, the you know the younger groups, it's exclusive almost. I mean, people don't like to talk on the phone as you get younger in the demographics, um, but it's really across the board. And what baffled me, the, the, the thing that was confusing to me that really got me interested was trying to figure out why can't I interact with the businesses that want my money 
or want to do things with me by messaging. The way, and, and not only messaging, but the messaging that you prefer. Yeah, exactly. Because there's a lot of different options. Out exactly, there. Like, like period first, and then, uh, and then wherever I want to be. Right. But, but really, the first thing is, why the heck isn't anybody doing this? It's more, we've, we learned at, at Radio Point that it's incredibly more efficient for an agent to be able to message than it is to be on the telephone. I don't want to be t- tied to a telephone or have to wait while I'm on hold. Like all of those horrible things and interactions, why can't I do that over messaging? And so that's where we really dug in. And, and what, what we got excited about is really a vision of the world in the future where a business can interact with a consumer about whatever it is, wherever that consumer wants to be interacted with. You know, if it's voice, that's fine. But more likely, it's going to be over some kind of a messaging channel whether it's some of the OTT channels like WhatsApp or, or um, WeChat's a whole other story. You can look at the way that WeChat's used in China and you can get a glimpse into uh, what's possible over messaging. But WhatsApp or Messenger or even just plain old SMS or chatting on a website um, or the voice assistants that are starting to proliferate in, in Alexas and, and um, the different you know, home, home assistants. Uh, so that was really the vision that we got excited about in a, in, a, in a world where that business remembers who I am and remembers the conversation and the context of the interaction that we've had in the past. And so that's what we thought there was an opportunity to do, to go and help businesses have a conversation with their consumers where they, um, they remember who that consumer is, they remember what the conversation is, has been about in the past, and you're able to interact with the different parts of the business that want to interact with you and uh, to break down those silos between different parts of the organization. So that's really what we started focusing on, is enabling businesses to a message first, so they've got that capability, and then secondly, message wherever the consumer wants to be or wherever they want to communicate with their customers. And then thirdly, start to build some intelligence into the conversation that they're having with the consumer. Um, so that they don't need to, you know, look, go back and look at all the tickets that you've had in the past, you know. And then the sort of the fourth layer that, w- that we've built into the platform is the ability to integrate the different business systems um, from across the organization. So that the marketing software can participate in the conversation, the customer service software can participate in the conversation, the ERP can communicate over the, the conversation about when your package is arriving, so that the whole organization can participate in this conversation with the consumer. And really streamline that process. Completely streamline that process, manage the orchestration of those conversations, and then store that conversation and the information about the consumer so that it's not a dumb interaction. So it's not, tell me who you are again, um, knowing that the last time you you interacted with me, you were pissed off because we screwed up an order. Um, So I know that before I interact with you. Um, knowing that you were just on with customer service before I send you a marketing coupon or whatever the case is. So that's really been the vision that we've been building. And it translates in, into a, a B2B platform now, right? Like you're, you're selling this to other enterprises um, and you have a lot of experience in, in that field. Did you leverage a lot of that initially when, when you're going out and finding customers for Smooch? Yeah, I mean, I think there's, there's certainly a lot of... Isn't that, they're not sort of individual relationships I've got, but I think that the B2B sale, and I think what's even more like what we've done in the past is the sort of B2B2C sale. You know, it's, it's going to businesses and equipping them with things to make their relationships better with consumers. 
And so a lot of the lessons about how an enterprise sale works, what enterprises are worried about, um, what the challenges they have to overcome to deploy new technologies have been hugely helpful for sure. But I, I think you know, businesses are slow to adopt new technology. And so um, we continue to work with enterprises directly, but where we found the initial market for the business was selling those conversational capabilities or those, getting really buzzwordy, but the omni-channel conversational capabilities, um, selling that to the software makers that already sell software to enterprise. And so those folks today need their software to be able to have those capabilities. And so our customers are, are folks like Zendesk, for instance. You know, Zendesk is already selling to hundreds of thousands of businesses software to chat with their customers or give customer service or whatever. You know, we sell to, Oracle has a, a bot platform that they sell to their customers to be able to build uh, chatbots. So we sell to them. So the initial place that we found a real business in, in this omni-channel messaging world is selling to the software providers that sell to enterprise. It's still early for enterprise, but we, um, but we think we're in a great place to um, grow the business more as more enterprises start to look for this capability themselves. I have to ask, how did you come up with the name Smooch, or how did you collectively come up with <laughs> Smooch was, it's funny, we, we, thought, we, we didn't know that the business was going to go as enterprisey, and we didn't know that we were going to go as enterprisey to software makers. Like we sell to like Genesis and like these big old school, um, so we didn't know that's where it was going. We, we thought it was going to be a little more mass, a little more Twilio-esque in terms of developers building this into their app. So we thought that cutesy was good. But the, the reason why we, we went through, we actually used a naming consultant um, who just helped sort of throw a thousand names on a wall and narrow it down, and we didn't have to spend too much money on it. But one of the reasons I think we were all, all the co-founders were independently drawn to it is Smooch is ultimately about trying to create intimacy between a, a consumer and the brand. So that when I'm interacting with a brand that I am a customer of, it feels like they know me, it feels like um, we have a relationship. And so really that intimacy is what we're trying to build into the infrastructure. And so that's why I think we were, we were attracted to Smooch. It was sort right. of cutesy, it was sort of tongue in cheek, but it was really part of what we're doing, is trying to, to make um, these relationships more intimate between brands and their customers. You guys raised a rather large seed round or Series A uh, sort of thing, yeah. uh, however you want to label it. How was that process? Yeah, it, it was good. I mean, it, it was great. We were, we were fortunate that our existing investors at Radial Point um, wanted to take some of the proceeds from, um, from the sale and roll it into this business. And you know, I think it's, you know, track record is really important to VCs. And so I think that A, because we were funding a lot of it ourselves, and B, because you know, the team is pretty spectacular with a, with a track record, um, you know, it went pretty, they it went pretty to get quickly. Involved. Exactly. Right. Right. And we, you know, we're building enterprise software, and so you don't know how long it's going to take. Sales cycles are long. You need to really invest in software infrastructure. It can't be too hacky. You, know, you need to get through security compliance and all kinds of stuff. And so it, it takes money to get you know, first enterprise customers. So it was, uh, I think it was the right size around, um, and we were able to do that, I think, because of the team and because we were also putting a lot of our own money into it as well. You transitioned out of your role of, as CEO of Smooch. 
Um, what, what, what's your role now? What's your involvement now with the company and why did you make that decision? I, I stepped in for really the first two years. I was, you know, classically eight hour a week kind of startup, like trying to crack the back of the problem and find the initial market, clarify the vision, get the initial products shipping. Uh, and so we were able to do that in the first couple of years. You know, we found that first real business selling to the software makers. But uh, at the same time, in my personal life, had some changes. My partner and I had our um, had our first child in uh, in February of this year, and so knowing that was coming down the pipe, as well, Warren, my partner who I'd, I'd worked with at, at Radial Point, was able to free himself up from what he was doing, and so the stars aligned that I was able to to step back, and my co-founder Warren was able to to, to step in and take over CEO so that I could. Uh, spend some more time with family and, and take these first few years of, of my son's life a little bit more face-to-face and, and fortunately have the, the flexibility after being at this game for a while to, to be able to do that. So you have a pretty rich background in tech. What is your experience with, with hands-on tech? Like, do you code? And like, how are you able to navigate just all these different languages, given that you majored in, in accounting and, mm-hmm. you know, you come from this business background, but you dive into all these very technical aspects of these tech businesses. How did you navigate that? Yeah, no, like, I, I can't code a whip. Like, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm definitely not a techie. I think, I mean, first of all, I've always had awesome people around me. So, like, that's, that's fundamentally... Um, Part of it, you know, is, is I've got awesome technical partners or, or technical teams that can help figure out um, how things get done or what the big risks are, the big problems are around stuff. I mean, I have a, a, an understanding of how technology works, and I've been around long enough um, to pick up a fair amount. The terminology. Yeah, and, and how stuff works. You know, like we, um, you know, if, if you're running... Uh, you know, a $15 million capital budget to build server rooms for an ISP, you figure out, you know, what different modems and routers and how they interact with stuff is and why the switch is better than the other. Like, when you're in it, you learn it. That doesn't mean you can do it. Mm-hmm. So, um, so, yeah, so I, I certainly know about code and I know about languages and I, and I know what's possible and what's hard. I think, you know, the flip side of it is I've always... Certainly with the kinds of problems that I've worked on, I've, I've always believed that it's possible. <laughs> like mm-hmm. if, if technology can solve that, if you get the right people and give them enough time and money, you'll be able to solve it. Now, I haven't been out there trying to split the atom, but, um, but when it comes to some of these problems, uh, you, can, you can get it done. And so I think more about the problems and what the fixes can be and, and bring people around to figure out exactly how the technology works. Uh, so at this stage now, um, you you also are an, an angel investor in a lot of tech companies. Can you can you walk us through what you're what you look at when making a, a decision to invest in in a company? So it's interesting. I, I actually don't do a lot of. I have in the past. I don't do a lot of direct tech angel work. Um, there's some exceptions to that, and it's usually because it's it's somebody that I I know and I feel like can I can add particular value. But I, I generally get involved in startups through funds. You know, so I'm an LP in in several um, early stage uh, venture capitalists in town and, and in Canada, and so that's mostly my interaction. The place where I've I've done more direct business is 
sort of in an area where I've tried to build up some expertise, which is in, in food and uh, sustainable food systems um, that has a technology part to it as well. And so that's where, um, I think I mentioned it before, I was doing... Eo capital. Yeah, exactly. And so there, you know, I've got a series of investment criteria, you know, where I think there's an opportunity to invest in a place where I'm able to help add value uh, in those businesses. So it's a fairly sort of tight criteria for what I'm looking for. Uh, and I meet with lots of folks, you know, when I have been actively investing, I meet with a lot of folks and try and tick all the boxes, you know. A lot of it's about team, you know, for where I like to invest is sort of before the business is at a, a scale where it's interesting to private equity investors. And there is sort of early indication that there's a real product demand from consumers, you know. The food business is a little different than tech in that it's, it's harder to get investors, per, even with some early customers, and so I look for businesses sort of in that space where I think I can help. It sounds like it sounds like Edo Capital is almost like uh, an extension of your, uh, you know, of your business background and experiences, as well as a passion project, right? Um, uh, you know, I, I know that you're very into foods, mm-hmm, yeah. um, and it's the right city to be in to to be that as well. Um, what's your favorite restaurant in Montreal? I, you know, I, I can't. I, I can't say there's a favorite restaurant. There's so many great restaurants in Montreal, and it changes all the time. Yes, yeah, so I, I can't pick one, unfortunately. <laughs> um, and there's new ones all the time. So what's great about Montreal, I think you're right, is that there's an amazing food culture. There's an amazing um, food production community. You know, we've got great farmers and great, um, great foragers, and, and there's a great view of looking at, at food. We've got a whole bunch of choice here that other rest, other cities don't have. So it's, right. we're lucky. So speaking of Montreal now, um, you were not born here. Your your family moved here and stuff, but you still stayed here throughout your career. What was there anything in particular that you know made you continue to to build businesses here instead of taking them elsewhere? Which I'm sure you had opportunities to do so. I know Smooch has an office right now in San Francisco, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, what is it about Montreal that that kept you here? And how important is it to be to have a footprint as a tech company in Montreal, in San Francisco, and other places in the U.S.? Yeah, I mean, I think the the short reason is is has always been that there is an awesome pool of talent here. Not in every part of the business, there are places where it's tough in Montreal, but in a lot of the important places, especially if you're in a tech business, there's a bunch of awesome talent, and so uh, it's hard to beat. You know, the R&D credits are great. You know, it makes a difference. And so if you're looking for some kind of a competitive edge, um, there's some great ones here in Quebec. Uh, and so uh, that's always sort of been the reason why I've, I've stayed. And But the truth is I also love Quebec. Like, I love Montreal and I love living here. And, and it's a great place to live. So that's part of it, too. think that it's very easy to mythologize the valley and for everybody to think that it's, it's awesome and going to the valleys um, a must do. I think people should avoid the valley at every cost, personally. If you need to be there because your business needs to be there, then you need to be there and have a presence there. But there is so m- many opportunities there and so much great opportunities 
that you'll end up for, from, from a staffing perspective, you know, you'll pay three or four times what you'll pay here and the talent will be significantly less at a lower caliber. Like it's really hard. Um, there are some businesses where it makes sense to do it, but I think it's, it's easy to mythologize. It's incredibly expensive. There are lots and lots of great places for people to work that pay um, more than whatever you're gonna pay. And people are always looking for the best opportunities. So people hop around a lot. So it's, it, it can be challenging. The flip side is there is a great community of investors and there is a whole bunch of people that are looking for opportunities. But, uh, but I think it can be very, very challenging. Yeah, we, we just released a report on, I don't want to call it a report, but we just um, released a post on uh, the Montreal startup landscape and why Montreal, or why we believe Montreal is growing as a, as a hub and a community for startups, and not just Montreal, Canada as well. Um, and, and one of those things is to, is to expand on what you said before is why you should avoid Silicon Valley and, and San Francisco is because of that competition of talent. I mean, totally. you're, you want to hire top talent, you got to compete with Google and Facebook and Amazon and, and so on. Whereas uh, here, you could, you could build you, a, a team and, and go after the people you want to hire. Totally, totally. I think you'll find even in the Valley, it's more and more common now that, that startups in the Valley don't actually do much of their engineering or development in the Valley. Like it's super, super common that they've got offshore teams. So there'll be real employer employment teams, but you'll, they'll be in the Ukraine or they'll be in Serbia or they'll be wherever. And that's more and more common because you just can't get great coding talent. You're going to pay too much and they're not going to be that great. Right. You're an influential person in, in the Montreal tech space, just given your, your rich background and, and history here. Um, what kind of growth have you seen in the city, if, in the tech landscape here? Since since you really came here and got involved in in the tech scene, yeah, I mean it's been it's completely night and day. I mean there's there's a pretty vibrant startup and tech community now that did not exist at all 20 years ago. Like it just there, it wasn't here, you know. Um, and I think a lot of that has to do with um, you know I think some of the early successes in the in the business helped. You know, I think you've got to have a few generations of some exits and some people getting experience working at companies that are like that, you know, and then they go out and start businesses. So I think it, it takes a while to get going. Um, so I think that has some to do with it. But I also think that, I think that there are some sort of ecosystem players in the city that are, have been invaluable and have really created it. And I, I think you, you got to take your hats off to, to the folks at Real and, yeah. and what they've built. You know, they... They really have brought that, that Valley mindset here. They've raised a lot of capital that's gone into a lot of businesses here. They've, I think they've done a lot to build the community here in Montreal. And I think, uh, I think yeah, I think they, they definitely, I think everybody here owes a bit of a debt to Real for, for what they've done. And there's a lot of other players too, a lot of other venture players, but I think Real has been probably more focused than anybody else in really building the underlying base that the, the tech community can, can stand on. To, to build any tech community in, in any city, it's, it, it, is it kind of like a, a chicken in the egg type thing, whereas do more startups bring on more venture capital shops and angel investors, and that helps grow the, the community, or is it more angel investors and, and venture capital shops 
bring on more startups? Like, which one fuels the other, in your opinion? I think it's, a, I think it's both. I mean, ultimately, I think you, you start with having some entrepreneurs that are going to do it one way or another. Right. You know? and, and those entrepreneurs find money somewhere. And, you know, so even if there's no, there's no money in a place, they'll find it from somewhere. It doesn't have to be local money. It doesn't have to be local money. Right. But then once those folks have some hits, then that brings more money, and then that brings more people. So there is a bit of a chicken and egg thing, but I think ultimately it takes entrepreneurs to go out and do it. Yeah. And when they do, um, more will come. Right. Hmm. Um, I, I'm going to name a list of companies you sit on the board for. Uh, Good Food Market, Expert C, Humanitarian U, not to mention Smooch, I guess. Um, a lot of people, myself included, don't fully grasp what it means to sit on the board of a company, right? I mean, mm -hmm. we understand that the board of directors makes a lot of high-level decisions on for the business, you know, including whether or not to let go of a CEO, uh, things like that. But what, what does the day-to-day -day look like to be a board member on all these companies? Is, is it manageable to, to be on a board, this, these many boards? Yeah, I mean, it, it depends on... It depends on the company and or the, the organization, what kind of organization it is, where they are in their growth, whether they need lots of help or they don't need lots of help. You know, one big difference is, you know, Good Food Markets is a public company. And so being on a public board is very different than being on a private board, um, both in terms of sort of the responsibility and the amount of work that's involved um, and the type of work that's involved. You know, so in, in, a, in a public board, you're really um, you're spending a lot of time on, uh, on governance, really digging into the numbers, risk management, policy management, um, and really helping support the management team to build the systems they need in the organization to look after ex external shareholders. You know, like you're really there wearing the hat of the public that are buying those shares. And so you've got a real responsibility to all of those moms and pops that are buying shares in the company. And I think in a, in a private board, most of the time, you, know, you are representing yourself as an investor most of the time. And so you're definitely thinking about all investors, but you're really trying to figure out how can you help the entrepreneurs grow that business to increase the value of your, your investment and help the business be successful. And so it's a bit of a different hat to wear between the two. But I mean, beyond that, it's really how much help and what kind of help is needed by the management team or the founders. You've been recognized for your work on several occasions. Um, you're on Profit's 100 Fastest Growing Companies, um, Canada's 50 Best Managed Companies, Canada's Top 40 Under 40, Ernst & Young's Entrepreneur of the Year. Um, it's fair to say you've, you've had a successful career uh, and are having a successful career, not that it's over. Um, but what, what do you personally want to accomplish next? What's next for, for Hamnet Hill? What, what are your passion projects? You know, I think right now my, my, you know, my biggest passion project is really my family and my son. I mean, it's, I'm really lucky to be able to be in a place where I can focus on that first and foremost um, and really spend time with 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 him as he's changing and growing and uh so really that's 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 number one for me right now you know i guess secondly i really enjoy working with other founders that are um in the shit you know um or trying to figure stuff out and trying to take their businesses to the next level you know i i really enjoy 
working on them, working with them on on business strategy or problem solving, defining their vision, uh, all, whatever it whatever it takes. Um, I really enjoy that. So those are the things that I enjoy. And then where I do it sort of depends. You know, I, I I'm still pretty involved at Smooch. You know, I'm not there day to day, and the team there is is really driving the business. But you know, I'm there to help with uh, things that come up as, as they need. Yeah, so, so that, that's, what I, that's what I enjoy most right now. I'm sure if, if history is, is any indicator, something is going to grab me at some point in the next while. But for now, I'm, I'm pretty happy focusing on those things. Hamlet Hill, co-founder of Smooch, Radio Point, and a number of other Montreal tech startups. To discover more startup founders and companies in Montreal, visit montrealstartups.ca.